I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself, or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. The podcast. podcast. And I'm not Theo. And I am. But also, I am not Juliet. (laughs) I was like, you're what? Just check it in with myself. (laughs) Theo. Yay. So, uh, what's shaking bacon? Uh, Well, as I told you pre show. Let's get right down to it. Yeah, we're going to just get straight to it because we're hungry. We're hungry for stuff to. For some sweet, sweet bacon. Oh, gross. It's going to go to a bad place real quick. (laughs) We're not hungry. No. Um, let's see. Well, this weekend, this week, actually on Friday, I took a half day at work and my niece has wanted a large TV set. She has a small TV set, right? Uh And, um, and she has a two-year-old. So she was like, oh, you know, blah. And I was thinking Christmas, this would be a great Christmas gift. And TVs are are cheap, you know, back in the day, buying somebody a TV set was like, are you going to propose marriage? Wow. <laughs> that's a $10,000 gift. Uh, and now they're like, you can get a TV for $200 and it's a great yeah. TV, right? Yeah. So um, so I got a big 65-inch TV, right? Brag, nice. brag. And nice. then I drove an hour and a half to her house. Uh-huh. And the Santa plan Claudia. was I was going to like sneak into her house while she was at work. My sister was going to uh-huh. help me, right? Because uh-huh. I don't have a key. And then we were going to swap out the TVs. I was going to get everything set up. And then we would have the great big giant TV set just playing when she walked home with a nice. little note to her like, hey, your uncles came by your house or whatever, right? So she yeah. didn't walk into the house and like, she lives alone. She's been a working house. mom, right? So if what your TV set's on, on, yeah, yeah. Like, get a gun. And she has one, everybody. Oh, scary. Yeah. So um, I think she has one. I don't know if she got rid of the gun when she... Um, had the, her son. I'll need to. I need to find that out because it is my business. <laughs> um, so anyway, it turns out that my niece decided to come down with the flu. Oh no! And she had to leave work early, right? Oh. And she went to my sister, and because nothing in my family could ever just be simple or straightforward, right? <laughs> so she's she has a really bad case of the flu, right? Like, oh. go to urgent care, critical bad. It's probably wow. not COVID because of the symptoms, but we're, you know, the COVID test negative. Great. Cool. But it completely took all the attention off of me. Oh no, and that's not fair. Put it onto her, Damn which it. was the whole point of the TV set was like, yeah. what a great uncle. You're amazing. No, <laughs> no, I got nothing. And so I'm Aww. quite angry at my niece and now she's out of the will. Did you give her the TV at least? No, I took it back. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah i gave her the tv um but because of the way things are right so uh my niece has a severe case of the flu her son my grand nephew does not have the flu and he's two so she wants to make sure he's not exposed to it so she stays at her mom's my sister my sister goes to her house now to like babysit for the weekend 
watch the giant TV that I left and then <laughs> text me every five minutes to complain about, she, how did this work? Like, I don't know. I just bought it and took it out of the box and plugged it in. That, I'm not the TV you're guy. On the hook forever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now I know yeah. all about the internet um, and how TVs connect to it. So th- yeah. that was my week. It, it was, um, it was a fun, nice little um, jaunt in my new car, which I'm always finding an excuse Yay. to drive. Yesterday, I spent three hours driving around for coffee because <laughs> I wanted to be in the car. Yeah, it was fun. Um, yeah, and uh, and now here we are. Here, here we are on a Sunday. What about you? What's shaking bacon? Oh, not too much. I went into the office for the first time since the pandemic started on Wednesday, so um, that was weird. It was strange that I realized how ridiculous it is to have to commute to a place where you just sit down and do the same things you would be doing at home. Um, so I didn't, I didn't, I have to say I didn't really like it. I did like seeing the people, oh, but sure. that's like five minutes. So you like see them for five minutes. You talk about whatever's going on in their lives or whatever. And, and then you're done. I mean, well, we talk about whatever's going on in their lives over zoom anyway. So it was really just five minutes to see somebody say, Oh wow, it's been so long since I've seen you. I can't believe it's been three years. And, and that's it. So, uh, the whole work at work thing is a little bit weird. When you were in the office, did you get a read for like, were there people that just go there every day now? Right. Like there are the people who never go. And then there are people who always go and you could tell the difference between the two. I didn't really see any people that were like that. Actually, there were some people that almost everybody went more often than me. Like I never went in and some people that were there had jobs that required them to be there like once a week or twice a week. And some other people like went in occasionally for meetings or whatever, but I had not gone in at all. So I was like the only one that had never, it was a, that we built the building and opened it like right exactly around the time that the pandemic started. So I had never been in the new building. So it was like, I got to find out where my office was and all that kind of thing. (laughs) after three years your office has been sitting vacant for three years it's yeah nobody's been there it's just well no i mean your personal space has been sitting did you have to like clear off the cobwebs and stuff no (laughs) they have maids (laughs) (laughs) so that's really all that's been up my dog is sick i don't know what's going on with her she's got some sort of stomach bug or something she's um kind of got stomach issues and she doesn't really want to eat very much and i guess i'll have to take her to the vet tomorrow as an emergency patient if she doesn't get better today but so keep your fingers crossed for her she's just not not really um not really feeling it oh that's yeah it's always sad when dogs are sick because they can't tell you how bad they're feeling yeah I, I feel bad enough. I wouldn't want her complaining, too. I would feel really super bad if she was like, my stomach hurts. I don't feel good. But like, All right, we'll take you to the vet today. Right. Well, was, that would be your gauge, right? If the, if your yeah. dog could complain, then you could just be like, shut up, you crybaby. Or, oh, my God, <laughs> no, we're going straight to the vet right now. Yeah, it would, that would be helpful. I read a, um, a sci-fi book once that um, was uh, explored the question, what if dogs could talk? But all they did was lie. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't a book. It was a short story. Yeah. No, yeah. I was like, what a great book. But yeah, it was a short story. (laughs) So speaking of lying. Well, I was going to say, speaking of short stories. (laughs) Speaking of things that are sick. (laughs) Speaking of. (laughs) Today, we're talking about cryptocurrency. Um. And I'll give everyone a little bit of a um, a summary of what cryptocurrency is because it's a little bit hard to grasp. I think at least it was 
for me for a while. Um, and I went to a website, Kaspersky, Kaspersky, Kaspersky.com, which is a security firm, um, to get their, their definition. And uh, they say that cryptocurrency is a digital payment system that doesn't rely on banks to verify transactions. It's a peer-to-peer system that can enable anyone anywhere to send and receive payments. Instead of being physical money carried around and exchanged in the real world, cryptocurrency payments exist purely as digital entries to an online database describing specific transactions. When you transfer cryptocurrency funds, the transactions are recorded in a public ledger or the database, um, and cryptocurrency is stored in digital wallets. So cryptocurrency got its name because it uses encryption to verify transactions for security and safety. And uh, cryptocurrencies run on this distributed public ledger I mentioned earlier, which is called blockchain, which is a record of all transactions updated and held by currency holders. Units of cryptocurrency are created through a process called mining, which involves using computer power to solve complicated mathematical problems that generate what are called coins. Users can also buy the currency from brokers, then store and spend them using cryptographic wallets. So these coins don't exist in the real world. They're theoretical, I guess. Um, Well, I guess they're not theoretical. They're real, but they don't exist physically. They're like God. They're like God. They exist (laughs) if you believe in them, but they, they do exist because, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated, and I have a very sketchy understanding of the whole thing. Yeah. They exist in that there are transistors and wires that are connected together. and Right. Right. So they, I mean, it. we just have to say they exist. You just have to say they exist in there. And there is a ledger that records their transactions, which means that there is proof that something was exchanged. But we don't really know what that something is. I don't really know what that something is. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a coin, but it's not really a coin. So, so this is all to say that we don't understand this very well, and we're not experts. Which so is we'll going to make it make fun. Some mistakes. Yeah, <laughs> we'll probably make some fun mistakes in this in this podcast episode. Um, so one of the world's largest. So so there there are no. Uh, banks, but there are exchanges. And one of the world's biggest and well-regarded cryptocurrency exchanges was called FTX, which stands for Futures Exchange. FTX had gone so far into the mainstream as to have bought the naming rights to the Miami Heats Arena and had also bailed out other crypto firms earlier this year. FTX filed for bankruptcy on Friday of this past week in what Grid called crypto's equivalent of the sudden collapse of investment bank Bear Stearns in 2008. So the head of FTX, who's a 30-year-old dude called Sam Bankman-Fried, I assume it's Fried and not Fried, um, but we call him SBF. Yes, and I'm uh, just right here, bad writing, super bad writing. Bankman? Bankman, really? Yeah. Your name's Bankman? Bankman-Fried. Bankman, right. And then Fried, <laughs> I love the Fried, because it's like, the bank is Fried, but I'm sure it's Freed. I didn't look for audio for pronunciation guides. I didn't either, but um, I think it's Freed. I'm sure it's Freed. But yeah, but the Bankman part made me really angry. I didn't even notice that until just now. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So SBF set up FTX in 2019 and um, made about $27 billion at at the peak of his fortune. It it was $27 billion sometime last year. And uh, he was the sixth largest political donor in the U.S. midterm elections this year and the largest donor to Democrats, having contributed almost $40 million with the vast majority going to Democrats, which is a big influence, which I have to say I'm kind of grateful for, Mm -hmm. even though, as we see, we're not necessarily on the side of SPF 
Um, FTX was in talks to be bought by the largest exchange by volume, Binance, but in early November, it became clear that a firm associated with FTX called Alameda Research was holding large amounts of FTX's coin, which is called FTT, on its balance sheet. According to Grid, that signaled that Alameda's foundation rested not on an independent asset like a fiat currency or another crypto, but on a coin created by its sister company, FTX. This meant that any problems at FTX reducing the value of the FTT coin would then drag down Alameda. Binance then reported that it would sell its entire stake in the FTT at a value of about $580 million. So understandably, investors got scared and sold off FTT in a self-fulfilling prophecy. FTX ran out of funds to let customers withdraw their funds and had to haul withdrawals altogether. So basically there was a run on FTX. Um, I think that's how you would say it. FTX isn't a bank, it's an exchange. But the funds that FTX was holding, I think you can say that. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's so, still very nebulous. Yeah, I mean, it gets goofy. But so, so FTX is sort of a middleman in a way, right? And so I, Theo, want to buy some crypto. I just can't go into a bank and get that. I have to go to a middleman, being FTX or uh, Binance or any of the other companies that that play in this field. And then I give them my hard-earned American dollars for yes. their fictional currency, in my opinion. Right. Right. Yeah, they're made up money. And then I own this fictional currency. But guess what? I can go back to an exchange and say, okay, I want to exchange this for some American currency. Yes, you right? can. And so that's what happened. Uh, Everybody was trading unless- back. Everyone wants it all at once, which is the same as it would be with a bank. If everybody tried to withdraw their money at once, it might cause a problem. But theoretically, it's not because of regulation, because the, that's where the $250,000 maximum deposit amount comes in. So that you're you're guaranteed to get your money back up to $250,000. Um, but that's not the case with exchanges, with crypto exchanges. So everybody tried to get their money out of um, FTX and FTX didn't have enough coins to pay them. Right. So people are left without their money. Um, yep. And FTX had to say, stop withdrawing your money. We don't have any money. Um, sorry, we'll try to get you more money maybe later if we can. So this is also bad that FTX turned over control of the company to John J. Ray III, who, if you recall, was the restructuring specialist who handled the liquidation of Enron. Yes. So that's not so good um, for FTX. And then in a ripple effect, as the price of the FTT coin plunged, large crypto markets also saw a downturn and the price of major coins has plummeted. So like Bitcoin and all the other coins that you've heard of, um, their price has has gone down. A woman named Noelle Atchison, who's the author of a newsletter called Crypto is Macro Now, which I don't know what that means, said, it is sentiment that has been hit, not value and not the potential impact on opportunity and access. The damage is significant, but it will encourage further improvements on transparency and resilience, as well as user awareness. It will produce a stronger industry once greater clarity emerges and emotions recover. However, as I was putting together this story yesterday, Reuters reported that at least a billion dollars of customer funds had vanished from FTX. The exchange founder, SBF, secretly transferred $10 billion of customer funds from FTX to his trading company, Alameda Research, which I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, a large portion of that total has since disappeared. One source put the missing amount at about $1.7 billion. 
In a subsequent examination, FTX legal and finance teams learned that SPF had implemented a backdoor in the bookkeeping system at FTX, which was built using um, custom software. So they said the backdoor allowed SPF to execute commands that could alter the company's financial records without letting other people know, including external auditors. This setup meant that the movement of the $10 billion in funds to Alameda did not trigger internal compliance or accounting red flags at FTX. SPF denied implementing a backdoor in a text message to Reuters. No, I'm sure so, they didn't. No. Uh-uh. I'm sure they didn't. No, yes. Uh-uh. The U.S. SEC Securities and Exchange Commission is now investigating FTX.com's handling of customer funds, as well as its crypto lending activities. And the Department of Justice and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission are also investigating. But I think additional problems emerged on Saturday, and I'm not really clear about this, but Um, FTX's U.S. General Counsel Ryan Miller said in a Twitter post that the firm's digital assets were being moved into so-called cold storage to mitigate damage upon observing unauthorized transactions. So cold storage means that the wallets are not connected to the Internet, and they do that to guard against hackers. Right. Take the fake stuff and put it in the real world so that you've got something. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, The company said that it had detected unauthorized transactions and analysts flagged that hundreds of millions of dollars of assets had been moved from the platform in suspicious circumstances. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, there was a hack. They were hacked, yep. They were hacked. I don't know if they were hacked by SBF. I don't know if they were hacked by random people. I don't know if they were hacked by Russia. Um, FTX officials confirmed rumors of a hack on the firm's Telegram channel, according to a Coindesk report, which said that the exchange had an instructed customers to delete FTX apps and avoid its website, which is crazy. It's so bad you can't uh, even say the words FTX without... You can't even... Yeah. You, without your computer being hacked. Right. Without all the uh, money that you owe going straight <laughs> to somebody, but not you. Yeah. So, so far... Uh, up till now, $3 billion in crypto has been stolen in general in 2022 through 125 different hacks. But this would be an additional, uh, we're not even sure how much money has been stolen, but maybe $10 billion, maybe a billion dollars, a lot of money. Um, the Mersa Baradaran is a professor at the University of California Irvine School of Law and wrote a couple of books. And she said, it's hard to believe anyone took the valuation seriously, let alone the people making them. The next question, said John Griffin, founder of Integra FEC, uh, the next question is how wide a contagion effort this is going to have on other exchanges and where the next potential losses can occur. So this is also a massive loss for the crypto community's credibility with regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is understandable. Um, SBF was sort of in favor of some regulation. He would go to Washington, yeah. D.C. and talk to regulators and, and um, donate money to um, everyone Everyone he could donate money to. Um, but now he's sort of the, the bad guy, and this is bad news it's, for everyone. <laughs> yeah, and I don't understand, like, the... understand any of this, right? Yeah. Uh, but... But I've got I've got some pieces, um, and so yeah, there there is an irony here that this guy uh, was probably I won't say the sole voice for regulation, but one of the very few voices within the crypto yes. industry for yes. government regulation, and yes. that's what was his downfall. You think that was his downfall that he oh, was in yes. favor of regulation? Oh well, I I don't think it helped. I don't think huh. it helped, um, and. 
in this story, which involved economics, uh, I found it really hard to be interested or pay attention or <laughs> find sources that came with coloring books, which is my usual speed for stuff, you know? Like, I, if I can color it in, I can understand it. Yeah. Thank you, Anatomy Class. You taught me that. I'll have to look for one for you on Amazon. Uh, but I, but I don't want to. I don't want to derail you. So that's okay. Um, Mark Lurie, the CEO of Shipyard Software, which builds tools for decentralized finance, said, "For a brief time, SPF was the face of crypto lobbying, donating massive amounts to both parties and actively engaging regulators. The natural human response to a false prophet is to dismiss the entirety of their platform and community. And both legislators and regulators are human. Sadly, they may have trouble trusting the space for a long time. Well, I mean, you shouldn't have trusted the fucking space it, in the first place. Right? Hello, Jesus Christ, you idiots." But okay, great, go on. Have, enjoy the 21st century. It's loaded with fun. Oh, my God. Um, but the good news is that uh, City Analyst wrote, we believe cryptocurrency markets remain too small and too siloed to cause contagion in financial markets. With an $890 billion market cap, whoa, in comparison to U.S. equities, $41 trillion. Uh, over four years, FTX raised $1.8 billion from venture capital and pension funds. This is the primary way financial markets could suffer, as it may have further minor, implication, minor implications for portfolio shocks in a volatile macro regime. So what that means is that my pension fund could have invested in cryptocurrency, and mm -hmm. I could be out hundreds of thousands of dollars oh, yeah, easily. if my, my management fund, yep. my management company had invested in cryptocurrency, which I hope they didn't. Um, they didn't tell me if they did, I would have taken my money out if they had if they had said something like that. Um, so I don't even know. I mean, I don't know if my retirement account has been affected by this. It, it remains to be seen. Well, it'll be interesting. Well, it won't be interesting, right? Yeah. It'll be it'll be alarming to see the impact that this cryptocurrency crash, we'll use that word, uh -huh. has on the real world, right? Exactly. Uh, because you raised an excellent point, which is that Everybody loves easy money. The buzz on the street right. was like, crypto, you just like, you put in a penny, you're a billionaire, right? Right. And so, great. And maybe, yeah, they did stick X amount of money into crypto, and maybe you're now down X, right? Um, yeah. 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 Yep. It would suck. Yeah. It would I'd be mad. I have a big no crypto uh, yeah. policy, not only in my house, but with uh, with my IRA like with your funds yeah. no you know what if if i can't touch it you can't put my money in it <laughs> that's the law real estate only and gold <laughs> right. gold 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 <laughs> and silver i guess um let's see so if you remember i said that that spf was worth like 27 billion dollars at some point last year well by 11th uh, the 11th which was thursday of this past week the bloomberg billionaires index considered spf to have no material wealth whatsoever so Thomas Hayes, who is a managing member at Great Hill Capital in New York, said this guy was the face of the crypto industry, and it turned out that the emperor had no clothes. Uh, that's the whole point between. That's the whole between? story about some preposition um, about crypto and NTF. Yep. yep. Right, and not FTX, but NTF, the art thing. Um, oh yeah, NTF. Yeah, like it's it's awesome that I mean it's ridiculous. The prediction: the currency of the future will be computer storage space, right? That's probably if, possible if you can buy slash own 
a sort of a system that can store information and data, then that becomes a value in a in a world where data is like I think we. I forget what it is, but it, there's some weird, scary statistic that like in one minute of internet time today, we store as much data as was ever generated uh, from like the eighties through 2000. Wow. Right. And so at a certain point you run out of storage, I guess, I don't know enough about this. So let's talk more about it since I don't know anything about that. aspect <laughs> of it. <laughs> I don't know anything about it either. But yeah, um, it's, yeah. It's goofy. It's, it gets into theoretical. Uh, and then that's where we dance in theoretical realm, right? Because those concepts are easier to understand and grasp. And then you can sort of piece them and layer. I can piece them and layer them down on the real world thing that's happened and been like, uh-huh. oh, okay, I get it. Sure. Um, that's like a banana and that's like a hungry monkey. All right. I got it. <laughs> So that's my story. Um, have you got any additional details? Oh, yes, I do. Because, oh, boy. Because I understood about, I knew you were speaking English. <laughs> I could follow the story of what happened to Sam, or S- uh-huh. um, I forget his initials. Um, SBF. SBF, right. I, I like to call him Sam because SBF reminds me too much of the uh, Saudi prince MBF. And I think that's his name. Oh. I'm not sure. Um, okay. And so... I'll call him Sam because he is my friend. Um, and I'm going to say, like, I like what I've seen of Sam so far, right? Really? Uh, well, I mean, so far, right? I've looked at two internet sites and mm-hmm. I've heard two podcasts. Um, okay. But here's how I untangled crypto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, a lot a lot of us will be <laughs> repeating what you said. <laughs> <laughs> And now here's where I read everything you said back to you. Um, Okay, so first of all, just the name, crypto, which, as you mentioned, comes from encryption, and not cryptic, which is what I always sort of thought, if I ever thought about cryptocurrency, that it was Uh cryptic currency. Because for me, it was like, okay, I don't understand it. It's a stupid internet (laughs) thing. It's cryptic to you. Great. Have fun. It's like planking. It's a fad. You're all doing it. Enjoy. (laughs) Right? Um. And so, uh, cryptocurrency was invented by nobody knows, it, but he has a name. Uh, it was uh, a anonymous paper went up. So here we go. This is the story of Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, oh yeah, which is a name that's um, used by a presumed synonymous person or persons who developed Bitcoin. I said crypto, Bitcoin, same thing for me, right? Um, and he authored a Bitcoin white paper. Um, and he created and deployed Bitcoin's original reference implementation as part of the implementation. He also devised the first blockchain database. Nakamoto was active in the development of Bitcoin up until about 2010, right? Um, there's been widespread speculation about uh, this guy's true identity, though his name is Japanese. A lot of people think that he's American or European, given his uh, fluency levels in English. Um, which feels kind of short-sighted to me. He could be mm-hmm. Japanese and whatever. Um, all right, I've lived in the States for 40 years. Nakamoto started um, his work writing Bitcoin code in about 2007. In August of 2008, he or a colleague, 
registered the domain name bitcoin.org. And then on October 31st, Halloween, just in case nobody mm -hmm. knew that, Nakamoto publishes white paper on um, crypto cryptography. Um, wait, published on the, oh no, I lied. So, uh, so it, on Halloween in 2008, Nakamoto releases this white paper to a mailing list. Um, and it's the cryptography mailing list uh, from some website called medsdowd.com. And we're getting a little too lost in the details here. The, um, the white paper was entitled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer economic cash system. I will now read you part of the white paper. It's not terribly long, and it's also not terribly complicated, right? Um, which was which was helpful. So there's this mm -hmm. mysterious unknown person who is putting up his name as a Japanese name, right? Why Japanese? Don't know. Who who could say? It does lend an air of respectability, right? Because if I mm -hmm. tell you the Japanese scientist told, said that drinking water is bad, you would maybe stop for a second, right? And be like, really? <laughs> But if I said a French scientist said, here's where I'm going to start a war, said oh, that drinking water was bad, you'd be like, oh, poo poo. I think we have listeners in France. <laughs> we do. <laughs> that was a special hug. Bonjour. Um, okay, so this is Nakamoto's uh, white paper. I won't read the whole thing, but he um, but real quick explains what this is and why it will work. So it starts. I've developed a new open source peer-to-peer e-cash system called Bitcoin. It's completely decentralized with no central server or trusted parties because everything is based on crypto proof instead of trust. Give it a try or take a look at the screenshots and design paper. And then there's a link to the very involved, very complex uh, proof, right? Uh, it's multi-page Proof and economy, internet, everything that I don't care to understand all in one beautiful multi-page paper. But this bit, uh, this one pager makes sense. Okay, great. So there's the link to, the, to all the details if you want them. And then he continues. The root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of flat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Banks must be trusted to hold our money and transfer it electronically, but they lend it out in waves of credit bubbles with barely a fraction in reserve. We have to trust them with our privacy, trust them not to let identity thieves drain our accounts. Their massive overhead costs make micropayments impossible. I don't understand what a micropayment is. I don't care. Uh, but I think that's a that sort of probably explains why that lady uh, that you quoted mentioned macro payments. Right. All right. Um, so Nakamoto continues. A generation ago, multi-user time-sharing computer systems, basically the internet, had a similar problem. Before strong encryption, users had to rely on password protection to secure their files and you place the trust in the system administrator, right? But then along comes, um, well, let me not paraphrase here. I'll just keep reading. Privacy could always be overridden by the admin. This is back in the day based on his judgment call, weighing the principle of privacy against other concerns, or at the behest of his superiors. Then, strong encryption became available to the masses, and trust was no longer required. Data could be secured in a way that was physically impossible for others to access. 
no matter for what reason, no matter how good the excuse, no matter what, it's time we had the same thing for money with e-currency based on cryptographic proof without the need to trust a third party middleman. Money can be secure and transactions effortless. Um, one of the fundamental building blocks for such a system is digital signatures. And then he sort of goes into how this works. But basically, if you do believe in internet money, right? And then I give you five internet monies. What stops me from turning around and giving the same five internet monies to somebody else? Why can't I copy and paste my money? Right. Right. And so this guy has found a way to do that with timestamps. So once I give you that money somewhere on the web, there's a timestamp that records that regardless of what servers we're on. And his system allows for reading all servers looking for timestamps. So if I give you five monies and then I give Brent five monies, the same five monies, copy and paste mm -hmm. it. I can't do that because the system is going to see that that five monies was spent you 10 seconds. Ago, right. So, yeah. all right, great. Um, so, th so crypto is born and then, um, and then I'm not sure how Sam starts a company called Alameda, but he starts a company called Alameda and let's, I'll even back up a little bit here because uh, I have this in, in a more understandable format coming forward. I'm I'm really excited. Just like start talking and <laughs> let's not do that. So, okay. So who's Bankman Freed? Uh, Bankman Freed graduated from MIT with a degree in physics. He traded currencies, futures, and exchange traded funds for Jane Street Capital. After more than a three-year stint at uh, the New York-based firm, he moved to crypto trading and he founded Alameda Research in 2017. Besides trading, trading? No. Besides trading major cryptocurrencies, the company also dabbled in other digital assets. Um, and so, so he's got Alameda, and then Alameda sort of spawns FTX. More than a year and a half after starting Alameda. Bankman-Fried teamed up with Gary Wang, a former software engineer at Google and a fellow MIT graduate, to start FTX. The company offered trading on crypto tokens and derivatives while also boasting of a robust risk management system. Bankman-Fried, often referred to by his initials, SBF, brought Binance on board as FTX's first investor. And Binance is the gorilla in the room when it comes to cryptocurrency. So if we want to think of it as banks... Binance is the big bank and FTX is a startup, but you know what? They like, they come out of the gate strong and mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a crypto crash that happens and uh, FTX buys up some of these companies and it gets even stronger. Um, uh, Sam was based in Hong Kong where his company was originally headquartered. Uh, but last year in 2021, he moved to the Bahamas uh, when FTX also moved its headquarters to the Bahamas, right? Um, Binance was an early investor in FTX. Uh, Sam was an advocate for regulation of the crypto industry and the head of Bitcoin, um, a guy named Changpeng Zhao, was not. This difference in regulatory advocacy created tensions between the two. Things got personal. And let's see. Uh, FTX fell quickly. So on Friday, what, this is like uh, a week ago, 
uh, on Friday, an article in a uh, online magazine called CoinDesk, which is a crypto news publication, said that Alameda Research, Sam's first company that helped launch FTX, had a lot of its value in FTX cryptocurrency. Both companies are at risk because their value is based on each other, so they're sort of codependent. One company's uh, value is based on the currency the other company issues. Suddenly, mm -hmm. FTX looks like an empty bag. Mm -hmm. So, on Sunday, Chang Peng Zhao, uh, who's the founder of Binance, and I'm sorry, earlier I said that Chang uh, Peng Zhao was the head of Bitcoin, and he's not. He is the head of Binance, and Binance sits on FTX's board, right? So, Binance came in, the early investor in FTX, things are going great. Sam's running around D.C. saying things like, we should be regulated. And Chang Peng Zhao's not a fan of that, uh, that idea, right? And so, so this article comes out in this respected industry publication that says, mm -hmm. isn't it weird that Alameda and FTX are both owned by the same guy and both companies sort of like uh, fund each other? Doesn't that feel mm -hmm. like there should be a problem there? Mm -hmm. And Shang Peng Zhao decides he's going to um, sell off $580 million of his shares at FTX for risk management purposes. But he also tweets that he won't support people who lobby against other industry players behind their backs. Yeah. So this leads to a run on FTX uh, Bank, right? Uh, which exchange. reminds me. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, exchange. The, <laughs> I want to get straight to It's a Wonderful Life and that scene <laughs> where Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed are in the car, finally married, and they're driving off to their honeymoon. But then there's a run on the bank and he's got to go in there and he explains to everybody what money is and how it works. Right. This mm -hmm. film, of course, is like the Great Depression and things are crashing and everybody's like, I need money. And so the bank's going to not have any money. And he Jimmy Stewart has to, like, say, Listen, your money's not sitting in the bank. Your money's sitting in that person's house and your neighbor's house. And and we all have to trust each other and know that we're all going to be okay. Right? Did this happen in It's a Wonderful Life? Pardon? Did this actually happen in the movie? You've never seen It's a Wonderful Life? It's been so long. Oh, my God. It's an every year event in my household. Whether I oh, want really? to or not, I will watch. <laughs> it is fucking tradition. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch it this year. You have to. You have okay. to watch it. It is, yes, it is great. And so, it's a wonderful movie. And uh, it was uh, James' mom's favorite movie. So she and I would Aww. watch it together. And he hates that Aww. movie. And he's never really, he, he has now seen it all the way through, but uh, he'd never <laughs> seen it all the way through. And when he Funny. first came to the States and I was like, it's Christmas time. And now we're going to watch It's a Wonderful Life. And he was madly in love with me in those days. And he was like, anything uh -huh. you want is just the most interesting thing in the world. Yes. Uh, and then we uh, watched it and he didn't love it. He was like, it's kind of scary. It's very rah, 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 America capitalism. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Where are you living right now? Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Okay. So, uh, so enough about that. But so everybody decided, oh, we're well, going to need to get our money out of there. And now FTX is about $8 billion in the hole. FTX had gone to uh, Binance to say, mm -hmm. hey, Binance, um, we're in some financial trouble here. Would you like to buy us? 
And a lot of people in the crypto world are like, why would you go to your number one rival and competitor and ask them to buy you when there's so many other options out there? You know, and I don't know what they are uh, because right. I tuned out as people started to explain what because it just got too it got too inside baseball, right? Uh, too much. Um, but so the concern is that Alameda, the first company, must have some really bad thing on its balance sheets, right? That he had to go to. Uh, basically the head of the industry to be like, I'm in super big trouble. You're the only person who will understand how I got into this kind of trouble and understand mm-hmm. that the trouble's not that serious. So why don't you just buy us and then everything will be fine, right? Mm-hmm. And the guy isn't because he doesn't want the uh, the industry to be regulated. And now right. he can pick up FTX for a song. Initially, he said that he was interested in buying FTX oh. and he would look at it. And then a day later, a mere 24 hours... He mm. said, no. And what does that do? It signals to the market that this is a poison thing, right? That right. there's something real bad there. And so, Get your money out. yeah. And it's possible that our friend Sam, who does seem like a good guy ish, you know, I mean, um, sure, he's super for, rich. For but, the type of guy that he is. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, right? I, I don't know. I wasn't that interested in him because I was like, mysterious Japanese man. Angry Chinese billionaire. <laughs> what, money, money is fiction. What? So, the interesting thing about SBF, in my opinion, is that he was in favor of this thing called effective altruism. I don't know if you're going to talk about that. No. Uh. Uh-uh. What is it? Um. So, effective altruism is this philosophy that that says that you should try to make as much money as possible so that you can give money as much money as possible to to, to uh-huh. worthy causes. So, and he was trying to do that, which I think is interesting. Um. I don't know how much money he gave to who. I know he gave a lot of money to Democrats, but I don't know if he like gave billions of dollars to the poor or anything like that. But that's that he tried to he in his first job at Jane Street, I think that's what it's called. He tried to get them to become effective altruists and they were having none of it, which is one of the reasons that he left. I so, like him even so that, more. I like him a little yeah, bit more. So that kind of makes you feel a little bit more warmly towards him, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say, like, I love that idea. It does make sense. Um, it also helps you sleep at night if you're earning billions of dollars. If you're earning billions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. And you could like feed everybody in India lunch one day, but you don't. Yeah. Right. But you, you're feeding everybody in, I don't know, Mexico City lunch. I don't know. Sure. Right. Whatever. Um, yeah, I get it. I love that concept. Um, and so speaking of concepts, this, uh, this got me to dive into what is money? Oh, boy. Because here we are. We're like. What? Bitcoin? That's stupid. <laughs> but when's the last time I touched a dollar bill? Maybe money's stupid. Not wearing too, a thong. Right? Thank you. Hi. <laughs> uh, and the answer is, my money's all digital now anyway. I know. Right? Um, I get paid by electronic deposit, debit card, things are paid online. I, I actually find cash to be inconvenient. It's what am I going to do with this? I have to go to the yeah. bank and deposit it. I have to turn the yeah. physical back into electronic in order to be right. able to use it in my life. Sure, I could go to the store and buy candy, but, you know. Right. Um, so I've got two quick little stories for you. They're both charming as hell. The first okay. one is, have you heard of the Yap uh, tribe or the Yap Islands mm. in the South Pacific? No. Well, so um, they're... Um, Let's just let's just get straight to it. Okay. All I'm right. excited. 
Yeah, me too. I was it's super charming. Um, okay, so there's a tiny island called Yap out in the Pacific Ocean, and economists love it because uh, this, the tribe that lives on the island um, is primitive. They're pre-industrial, and they have a form of money that they use, they exchange with each other, and the money is a giant flat stone with a hole carved in the center. Oh, yeah. And when I say a giant stone, it's the size of a man. And they weigh like like almost a car, right? Wow. So um, there's no gold or silver on the island of Yap. And I'm reading straight from um, NPR.org. Thank you, NPR. Um, But hundreds of years ago, explorers from Yap found limestone deposits on an island about 250 miles away. And they carved this limestone into huge disks. And they brought it back across the sea on their small bamboo boats, right? Wow. It's unclear if the stone started as money, but they became money, right? And so they, they were, it's big money. So if you're mm-hmm. going to, if you need a dowry, right? Your dad's got this stone and there you go. You trade the daughter for the stone, right? Um, I don't know if it'd be a house, but one of the examples that they used was, uh, when villages war with each other and there are deaths, a village will buy back um, its dead using these stones. And so they'll give a stone to the village in exchange for a body. Um, I see. The stones have to come over the water, 250 um, miles, right? They wow. weigh the size of a car. They're the, the way, They weigh the size of a car, please. They weigh as much as a car. They're the size of a man. They're not easy to move around, but that's what they used to do. So if Sam gave the, if Mary bought the stone from Sam, right? Here's a house. Okay, you can buy my house. Give me that stone. Sam would push the stone over to Mary's place and Mary would have the stone. After a while, they quit doing that. And the stones just sort of lay where they were and everybody understood that's Mary's stone. All right, no, Mary sold that stone to Greg. It's Greg's stone now, right? Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. this becomes money. And that's what we sort of do with our money, right? It's just kind of the trust that um, this money holds value. Um, And example two of what is money, these things aren't purely connected beyond the idea of trust, but that's all money is. We trust that this is is money. It holds value, right? Um, So the rocks held value because... In my opinion, as an anthropologist, um, they show they show access to power, right? It takes power to carve stones. It takes power to bring stones from one place to another place over the ocean, right? Um, it's evidence of labor, if you will, right? Um, and what do I do with that concept? I don't know, but it's there and it's tied up to money, right? Um, and so... Now, point two, seemingly unrelated, uh, and it is completely unrelated other than trust, Brazil, Brazil, the eighth largest economy in the world in the 1990s wasn't the eighth largest economy in the world. Uh, It was a shit show, and Mm. I did not know this, but in the 1950s, the president of Brazil decided he wanted to build a capital in the jungle, and so he printed a lot of money to pay for oh. building this giant city in the middle of the jungle that didn't exist before. Oh. And that led to 30 years of rampant inflation. And Jeez. there's uh, 
there's a, um, this wonderful life episode that talks about what is money. Um, and so this is this American life. Thank you. What did I say? <laughs> this wonderful oh, life. God damn it. I really love that movie. <laughs> uh, this, this wonderful American life that, um, that talks about this in, in great detail. But uh, so in short, Brazil had year over year inflation and the prices would literally change in the grocery store in the 1970s and the 1980s while you were shopping. There was a guy wow. who would walk around with a sticker gun and he would sticker up the new prices. And so wow. the game for everybody was to get ahead of the sticker man in the store oh, and get man. the things off the shelf before the new stickers could go on. And some wow. people played the game of peeling those stickers off. And for those of yeah. us who lived in an age of um, sticker prices on items, mm -hmm. I had a sticker or two that fell off of a thing on my way up to the cash register that I was going to buy. <laughs> like, oh, it's cheaper now. Okay. And I don't feel bad about it at all. Um, so, so you have the sticker man with a gun and he's stickering everything. And, and it, inflation was just ridiculous. And inflation was so bad they didn't have credit. Because how can you buy something for $6 and then tomorrow it's worth $10, but you only owe 6 on it? Well, that, that nobody's going to play that game, right? Um, and so Brazil tried for 30 years to figure this out. Different presidents tried different things, and nothing ever worked. And inflation just went up. They had inflation at 80%, wow. right, year over year ridiculous like I, I don't ask me to explain anything in detail about that because one i can't to this american life didn't either and so i don't have that information <laughs> in my head um so what happened was a new president came in and he appointed a finance uh minister who had zero economic background right nepotism i know this guy you're great come on over mm -hmm. well, this guy knew four guys who had majored in economics in grad school right and given that they were all brazilian their interest was inflation right and so he went to these four guys that he knew in grad school they were all friends they're all drinking buddies right and said hey could you help me because i don't know anything and i need to figure out the stupid um um inflation stuff that we're going through and the guys were like no, sorry, it's hard. It's not easy. It's going to take a long time. And it's just not, it can't happen overnight. And that's what you're looking for. And we're not going to get involved, right? Mm -hmm. So they recorded and eventually they did. And so here's here's what they did in a nutshell. The uh, the currency at the time was, let's, I think it was called the Brasilia, but we'll just call it the Brasilia, right? Okay. Um, so the Brasilia really had no value. It just, it, inflation, right? A gallon yeah. of milk might be four Brasilia and then the next week it's suddenly 20 Brasilia, right? Right. And you were paid last week. So you have last right. week's wages um, right. or last week's amount. Um, so they switched their currency from actual pieces of paper to something that was intangible called the UVR, um, which stands for... Uh, unit of real value or unit value real, right? Um, yes, uh, so the UVR. And in the newspaper, there was a chart that was printed every day that said um, one UVR is worth two Brasilia. 
And then the next day, one UVR is now worth four Brasilia. Inflation. The next day, one UVR is worth 12 Brasilia, right? And this is what was happening with milk as well. So what people right. were actually doing was they were buying UVRs. They were also paid in UVRs. And suddenly people started to, I shouldn't say suddenly because it didn't happen suddenly. It did happen over time. But people started to think in UVRs because the stores were pricing things in UVRs and Brasilia. So there were two stickers on them. The UVR uh-huh. gallon of milk was uh, one UVR. But the Brasilia, it might be 30, right? And the next day might be 60. But the UVR remained consistent. And that encouraged people to not only, well, also they were paid in it. Um, but that encouraged people to trust the UVR because mm-hmm. it held its value. Mm-hmm. And then the government started issuing what's now in play, which is called the Real, the Brazilian Real. Um, and guess what? People used the UVRs to buy the Reals, right? Uh-huh. What changed? People's trust. That's it. I see. Then it didn't matter about the location of the stone. It didn't matter if it right. was sitting in front of your house or if it was on the beach still, right? It's that people knew that that stone was Mary's. People know the UVR is worth, one UVR is worth one gallon of milk, right? Um, and so, yeah, and now Brazil's the eighth largest economy in the world, and you're welcome. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so um, money is all about trust, and Bitcoin, well, I mean, we're sort of already, I'm already on Bitcoin. I'm not using Bitcoin. I'm not using crypto. That's not what I call my money, but that's what it is. I don't see it. I don't touch it. Well, not really, because you've got regulations and all that sort of thing that are protecting the value of your money. So it can't lose value like the FTT did, theoretically. I'll say theoretically, because I will throw Mr. Nakamoto's white paper at you and say that he said that, um, did he say banks devalue their currencies? The problem with the conventional currency is trusted required. The central bank must not be trusted to debase the currency. Yeah, so, oh, I don't like thinking yeah. about this. I don't want to be out we'll of just money. just say that I don't understand it very Holy well. Holy no, not at all. All so, I could do is so throw white papers at you. <laughs> 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 yeah, so there could, yeah, I, I'm not going to get into explaining because I don't know what I'm talking about, so. Oh, but so that's we what do makes have an it fun. <laughs> I we learned... have an apology to talk about. Are you ready? I Yes, I am. So on November 10th, which is the latest communication on Twitter that anyone has seen from SBF, he put out a, an apology, which is a series of 22 tweets, which I'm not going to read them all to you, but I will read the ones that are relevant to the apology part. Um, so the first one said, I'm sorry. That's the biggest thing. I fucked up and should have done better. Number two said, I should. I also should have been communicating more very recently. Transparently, my hands were tied during the duration of the possible Binance deal. I wasn't particularly allowed to say much publicly, but of course it's on me that we ended up there in the first place. And then he says some more stuff that I'm going to ignore. And number five, the full story here is one I'm still fleshing out every detail of, but at a very high level, I fucked up twice. The first time, a poor internal labeling of bank-related accounts meant that I was substantially off on my sense of user's margin. I thought it was way lower. 
Six, my sense before, leverage 0x, U.S. liquidity ready to deliver 24 times average daily withdrawals. The actual leverage was 1.7x and the liquidity was 0.8 times Sunday's withdrawals. Because, as he said, of course, when it rains, it pours. We saw roughly $5 billion of withdrawals on Sunday, the largest by a huge margin. And tweet number seven said, and so I was off twice, which tells me a lot of things, both specifically and generally, that I was shit at, and a third time in not communicating enough. I should have said more. I'm sorry. I was slammed with things to do and didn't give updates to you all. Eight, and so we are where we are, which sucks, and that's on me. I'm sorry. Nine, anyway, right now, my number one priority by far is doing right by users, and I'm going to do everything I can to do that, to take responsibility and do what I can. 10. So right now, we're spending the week doing everything we can to raise liquidity. I can't make any promises about that, but I'm going to try and give anything I have to if that will make it work. 13. Because at the end of the day, I was CEO, which means that I was responsible for making sure that things went well. I ultimately should have been on top of everything. I clearly failed in that. I'm sorry. And then he said some more stuff. And number 22. And finally, I sincerely apologize. We'll keep sharing updates as we have them. And that, I think, is the last anyone's heard from SBF, at least uh, as of the time we started recording this. He could have said something since we started talking. Totally, yes. <laughs> Anything could have happened since we started talking. Um, so so how do I rate this apology? Um, I, I have to say I'm, I'm not a big fan of SBF. I think he didn't really know what he was doing when he did it, and that's why we are where we are today. Um, I think a lot of the... Crypto people don't really know what they're doing. Um, or, well, that's my sense anyway. I mean, I don't know any better than they do, so I can't really say that they don't know what they're doing. But um, it's just a sense that I have. Um, but as far as this apology goes, I think it hit almost all of the points that we look for in an apology. So there was an expression of regret. There was an explanation of what went wrong. There definitely was an acknowledgement of responsibility. There was a declaration of repentance and an offer of repair. Um, there was no request for forgiveness, not at least um, explicitly, but maybe implicitly. So I have to say that as far as this apology goes, um, I would give it an 8 out of 10. I, I think I'm, I'm not happy with what happened, and I think it was entirely his fault. But just looking at the apology as an apology, I think it's pretty reasonable. Wow. I'm going to say... I was really sitting like at between a four and a five until yeah. you walked through all of yeah. the points, which I should have done too, but I didn't. I <laughs> do the more like that's what I'm here for. It's a two, right? <laughs> um, and then after you did that, I was like, "Oh man, I feels like an eight, but I don't want to give it that high because I hate what he did." But yeah, seven point nine. All right, that's fair. Yeah, seven point nine. Yeah, so it's an average of seven point nine five. And it was your analysis that changed my mind. My deep, profound analysis. Once again, I was very focused on the act. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I really think he's he. As he said, he's one hundred percent at fault. He absolutely is responsible for what happened. He and his team, which he's responsible for putting together, um, fucked up. And I think he's probably now trying to steal money from his own. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that's not really true. It looks like things don't look good, let's say, for as far as the, the money being stolen from FTX. 
Uh, doesn't look good for SBF. Nothing looks good for SBF. But the apology was a pretty good apology. So it, it, perhaps he is uh, a psychopath and made it all up. Doesn't mean a word of it. In which case, uh, the the um, the rating of the apology would go down to a zero. But I don't have enough evidence to say that he made it all up. So it's a pretty good apology, and I'm giving it an eight. Cool. Right. I. I mean, I'll say like, would I watch a documentary on him now? I would because I've got some questions. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's interesting. How good a guy are you really? Some of the stuff you say sounds good. Um, you're very young to yeah. be so rich and in yeah. control of so much, but then people are fucking stupid. So yeah. not your fault that a ton of people handed you a ton of money. Um, Maybe maybe it is your fault that you robbed one piggy bank to pay the other piggy bank back. Right. And maybe you that's probably it feel like a Ponzi scheme in a way. Um, exactly. But what do I know? Not enough to be a, a billionaire. <laughs> but I wouldn't want to be. It's too much trouble. Yeah, seems like it. That's what we'll tell ourselves anyway. Um, okay, so do you have an apology expected or a who's sorry now today? I have an apology expected. Awesome. And this one just fell right out of the sky and straight into my lap, and it hurt. Um, <laughs> okay, so Martin Mubarak will be apologizing, most okay. likely to, well, for sure the art world, um, probably to... Uh, I, I'll say federal investigators, but this is all... Uh, all coming at him from Mexico. Mm. So I'll read this straight from Smithsonian. Ah, I won't read it. Okay, so here's what happened. Martin Mubarak is like a really super rich guy. And he decided that he was going to generate some NTFs. The art uh -huh. thing, right? Uh -huh. I know you know that for our listeners who don't. The digital art thing, right? Which I've never fucking understood. But who cares? Right. And so what he did was he had a big party at his mansion in Miami and he invited a ton of people. And this was in July of this year. And he took a beautiful martini glass and he filled it up with um, blue ethyl alcohol. Okay. And then he took a page out of Frida Kahlo's personal diary where she had drawn an illustration that's called Fantosmos Sinestros, Sinestros, uh, Sinister Phantoms, right? Because I speak Spanish so well. I had to translate uh -huh. that for you. And then he lit a match. And he set the martini glass ablaze, which burned Frida Kahlo's artwork to ashes. Mm -hmm. Then he made it an NTF. And he sold four of them, and he's generated $11,000. The piece which he burned is estimated to have been worth $10 million. Damn. Yes. And not cool, right? I mean, outside mm -hmm. of like what he did, not cool. Um, let's see here. And now I will read from Smithsonian Magazine. So, okay. So all that happened in July. Four months later, it looks like Mubarak's stunt will cost him a lot more than it will earn him. The burning of the drawing, which Mubarak alleges was the former Fantamenos, all right, great, Sinestros, a nine by six inch ink and watercolor work that Kahlo uh, drew in her diary in 1944, 
mostly flew under the radar until September when it reached Mexico's National Institute of Fine Arts and Literature. On September 26th, the Institute announced that it was investigating whether the drawing that Mubarak burned was authentic or not. If the drawing was indeed a real Kahlo work, Mubarak has committed a federal crime in the eyes of the Mexican government, which protects wow. Kahlo's entire body of work as national treasures, as well they should. In Mexico, the deliberate destruction of an artistic monument constitutes a crime in terms of the federal law on archaeological, artistic, and historic monuments and zones, the Institute said in a statement um, per Google Translate. <laughs> you couldn't find anybody who speaks Spanish. Hola, estoy aquí. Um, on the other hand, if the drawing was an imitation, Mubarak could find himself in trouble for fraud. Well, if he did actually burn it. He is breaking the law. Um says this guy who specializes in art. He's an attorney who specializes in art and cultural heritage. And if he didn't, if it was a reproduction, then he might have violated copyright law. And if he copied the original with an intent to deceive, it could be fraud, right? All that to generate NTFs, because I'm sure he was hoping to earn more than like $10 million. Um, the Museum of Frida Kahlo, or the Frida Kahlo Museum, released a statement condemning Mubarak's actions and... Uh, and is raising potential legal concerns. Mubarak tells the Times that he thinks that Kahlo herself would approve of his stunt. And hmm. I will quote, If Frida Kahlo were alive today, I would bet my life that if I bet you bet your life, I would bet my life <laughs> that if I asked to burn a small piece of her diary to bring some smiles and better quality of life to children, then she would say, go ahead and do it. I'll light the fire. So, Where did the children come in? Right. That was the bit that I left out. Um, so some of the funds that he was going to raise were going to go to uh, a a charity. A children's charity. Right. A children's charity. Right. But most of it was going to go into his pocket. Um, yeah. Mubarak, for his part, maintains that the drawing was authentic. He tells the Times that uh, he bought it from a private collector in 2015. He won't say how much he paid for it, but it was valued, if real, at $10 million. Um, let's see. When the Times asked Mubarak if he wished he hadn't burned the drawing, he said he, oh, sorry, if he hadn't burned the drawing, he, this is the paper quoting themselves, they're saying that um, he took a long pause and he sighed, and then he said, I like to say I don't regret it, which means that he regrets it. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, they point out that this idea of burning physical art for the sake of art is not a new um thing Idea. right um last year i hadn't heard about this last year a collective called burnt bansky lit an original artwork by the famous street artist on fire and then sold an ntf of the work hmm. but i was aware of the uh bansky auction remember when the girl with the balloon went up for yeah. auction and yeah. then the frame turned into a paper shredder right like yeah that's that. good yeah um, that was interesting. But so, sorry, Mr. Mubarak. I'm sure you'll be apologizing soon enough, either for uh, defrauding people Fraud. or for burning. Um, how the fuck Mark. do you burn a Frida Kahlo work? I don't know. Sad. Yep. I hope he took a good picture of it before he burned it. Well, at least there's an NTF, yes. And so it, yeah, it will live forever on the internet, which it was doing before, so everybody, because there were photos of it. People are dumb. Yeah. Okay, what yeah. about you? Who's sorry now? Apology expected. Well, I have an apology expected, and it's 
for from the apology should be from the owners and builders of San Francisco's Millennium Tower, which is a $350 million project um, consisting of two buildings, one which contains apartments, uh, like 400 luxury apartments, including a $13 million, 5,500 square foot penthouse, um, and the other, I think, is offices. Um, the apartments in the apartment building go for like $1 million for a one-bedroom apartment, um, which is, I mean, it's not bad for San Francisco. I don't know how big they are, but that's that's about your average price. Um, unfortunately, the Millennium Tower, which was built in 20, 2009, um, opened in 2009, the Millennium Tower has been slowly sinking basically ever since. Uh, the It's the tallest residential structure in the city. Um, and it's, it's uneven settling has caused cracks in the sidewalk near it and um, cracks in the basement walls of the next door building, the, um, the office building next door. And the uh, tenants were notified in 2016. Uh, by the end of last year, the tower had leaned a total of 24 inches to the west and 8 inches to the north. And I think by this time, it's 28 inches it's leaning to the west. And it settled 18 to 20 inches deep into the ground. I know, right? Oh, my God. So it's going to fall over and... It's going to fall over. And crush That's what people. I think. The, um, the ground where it's built in downtown San Francisco is basically like landfill. So it's not really safe in an earthquake. Um, uh -huh. The structural engineer responsible for fixing the issues, whose name is Ronald Hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I'm angry that he doesn't own a restaurant. But pray, continue. <laughs> <laughs> he said that the building is safe, and he said, since we anticipate that the rate of tilting will continue to decrease with time and will eventually stop, we do not anticipate the building would ever tilt enough to become unsafe. I have performed analyses that indicate the building can withstand at least 70 inches of tilt to the west and 30 inches to the north before its ability to resist earthquakes would be compromised. Even if this amount of tilting was exceeded, the building would still be safer than most existing buildings in San Francisco, but not as safe as intended by the current building code which to me sounds like bullshit i mean how can you tilt 70 inches to in one direction with without falling over well okay and we're like I'm 30 percent of the way towards our maximum anyway right now so right exactly well no not only that but the paper i got this from this called the sf is says that once the building gets to 40 inches the elevator would start to fail and the life safety systems Fuck. would start to fail so that would be a dangerous living environment to say the least i mean not to mention that it's uh, i don't know how many floors high it is but how are you going to get to the top if you live on on the penthouse or even above like the fifth floor or the 10th floor or however, however high people want to walk in any given day it's ridiculous it's totally ridiculous it's, and also it I, makes me not want to go downtown thinking the building is going to fall on me i mean it's only going to fall on you right right exactly <laughs> that's the only thing that will ever happen is this building is going to fall on you and jesus christ people are so again i will say it you may quote me people are fucking dumb Who's going to build, know. let's build the tallest skyscraper in San Francisco. Right, on top of landfill, basically. Even outside uh, of that, even if it was like solid granite all the way down to the Earth's core, the earthquakes, <laughs> hi, sorry, I, I am a Californian, I am not terrified of earthquakes, but I'll be goddamned if I would be living on the, on like the 50th, 60th floor of anywhere. Oh, I know. Hell no. Hell no. I don't even, I don't, I wouldn't want to work on, I worked on the 64th floor of uh, in LA. Yep, in the what well, was called the Library Tower at the time. Brag, brag, um, <laughs> and uh, I had to take two different elevators to get to my office. Oh, yeah. Right, and yeah. I'm afraid of heights. Uh, 
um, terrified oh, wow. of heights. That's awful. And the building uh, was tall enough that on the 64th floor, if you, you stood still, yes, it would sway. Yeah. And on yeah. super stupid bad, um, uh, when, um, oh my God, I can't remember the winds now. Um, the They're not the Santa. Santa Ana? Thank you. When the Santa Anas yeah. were blowing, I wanted to call them the San Andreas because I'm talking about earthquakes. <laughs> the San Andreas winds. Yeah, it'd be like, you know what? If there's ever an earthquake, I am fucking dead. That's this, scary. Right? And thank goodness, like, nothing bad ever happened. Yeah, um, while you were there. Yeah. But I was never more delighted just, than to get out of that building. I bet. I bet. I, I worked in a tall building downtown San Francisco for a while, and I was not happy either, even though I, I think we were only on the 20th floor or something. But still, it was like, man, I'd say no to this. Um, yeah. Uh, and they're trying to fix this building, the Millennium Tower, by going underneath it and shoring it up. But as they're fixing it, like it's making it worse, and it's just of course it's, it is. They're digging under the building that's I know. that's falling. <laughs> I know. And they were supposed to prop it up before they went and dug underneath it, but they decided not to prop it up because it would be cheaper not to prop it up. So they're just digging underneath it now. It's it's crazy. It's just nuts. I'm. I'm glad I don't work downtown. I'm, sorry, I'm glad I didn't buy an apartment in that building. I'm sorry. I would never buy an apartment from anybody named Mr. Hamburger. I would just be like, <laughs> this is a fake name. You're Ronald a fake. Ronald Hamburger. Yeah. No, I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> Boo. Well, that's all the news I've got today. Well, that's all the news I have today. That's how we should enter every show. Well, that's all the news I have today. That's all the news that's fit to print. Um, okay, so I guess uh, thanks everybody for listening. We appreciate it as always, and we hope you stay cool, cucumbers. And remember, we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at ApologiesAccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted. And on Instagram at Apologies.Accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>